these agonizing words of Jesus from the cross were in our sixth reading from Matthew 27 and are perhaps perhaps some of the most heartbreaking words in the entire Bible. But what do they mean? What does it mean for God, the eternal Son, clothed in human flesh, to be forsaken by God, the Father? What about from a human standpoint? While each one of you may have had experiences of being forsaken or rejected and as a result miserable in your, in your life, do your experiences in any way compare to the forsakenness which Jesus experiences here on Calvary? For tonight's sermon, I want to explore for a couple of minutes a definition of what it means to be forsaken so that we can, in a sense, be on the same page. And then what was unique about Jesus' being forsaken, his forsakenness on the cross. And I'll conclude with a few ways I think you can apply this, this evening's message to your Christian lives. So first of all, let's define forsaken. If it helps, you can cut the word in half. Forsaken. To do something for the sake of someone is to do something that benefits that person, something that brings him or her blessing or is favorable in their, in their manner to their advantage. So in the marriage ceremony, for example, when I officiate a wedding, the young man and the young woman promise to forsake all others for the sake of the new life that they share together with each other's as spouse. And in a religious vow to God, you promise to forsake idols for the sake of, for the advantage of, not just your soul, but for the honor and glory of God. Sometimes we even conclude a prayer for Jesus' sake, for his blessing, for his honor. So the word forsaken in English means then to renounce or surrender something, typically for the sake of something else, for the good of another thing. For instance, a young man in love might promise to forsake all his bad habits if the pretty girl will agree to marry him. It can also mean to abandon or leave something behind. An addict, for example, may need to forsake his friends from his addiction so that he can turn over a new leaf in his life. Or it could be bad. Far too many young men and women graduating from high school and leaving for college for the sake of enlightenment or progressive ideology, will forsake Christ to try to explore their real selves, always ending in disappointment and frustration. Forsaken is also a condition of a person or a thing, possibly a place, a condition that might be described as abandoned, as deserted, neglected, desolate. Sometimes we'll call such a place God-forsaken. It's so empty, it's so deserted, it's, so, it's, a, it's a blast zone 
of misery and ruin and despair. It appears in such places or with such people, practically all hope is gone. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've been there. So that's what the word means in English, but what did Jesus mean in using this word? What was he actually doing on the cross when he uttered this cry? You can imagine there's not a lot of room for conscious thought when you're hanging by your wrists and by nails in your ankles, supporting yourself through those horrifying wounds so that you can breathe. And as the story goes, the crucifixion is a, is a competition between dying from blood loss or suffocation. Why would Jesus have said this? You need to know a little background, first of all. If you notice, this is actually a translation in our reading from a non-English phrase. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is the Aramaic language. It's, a, it's kind of a Hebrew dialect. It was the common everyday language for Jews in the Roman province of Palestine in Jesus' day. Is a dialect that developed over the centuries following the exile. First, the Assyrian exile, and then the Babylonian exile. And so Jesus speaks his mother tongue. He certainly knew Hebrew, and he probably knew some Greek, maybe even some Latin, I don't know. But this was the language that Mary would have spoken to him. This might have been the language of his synagogue, potentially. It's a quotation, actually, from Psalm 22. It's the first verse of that psalm, the one psalm that scholars say has no referent in the author David's life that we know of. There's nothing in this psalm that points to any event in David's life, unlike all the other psalms that he wrote. In that sense, we call it a messianic prophecy. David had no idea, or only a glimmer at most, what he was saying. The psalm goes like this, Psalm 22, 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. That's quite something. In the moment of his deepest agony of soul, he quotes scripture. So what does this mean? Why have you forsaken me for Jesus? I think the first thing that it means is that while this isn't the first time Jesus was forsaken, it is absolutely the worst time that he was forsaken. In the garden, just prior to his arrest, we have our Lord in prayer, sweating drops of blood and facing up to the reality of his impending death. But he's not alone. He brings with him because he feels himself trembling to the core. Not all 12 disciples, but his three most intimate friends, Peter, James, and John. They've been with him in precious times in the past, and so 
they come with him into that walled olive grove called Gethsemane. The text doesn't tell us this, but I suspect it's because he needs support. As to his divine nature, no. But as to his human nature, he set aside those privileges and fully embraced every element of human weakness, even some that you haven't known. How did they do? Well, they fell asleep. So far from supporting him, they literally fell asleep on the job. And even in the smallest way, they are unable to provide even a tiny drop of consolation to our Lord Jesus Christ in what was, up until that point, his deepest hour of agony. You see, the divinely appointed calling which Jesus had so long predicted was now pressing upon him. And in that moment, He left the nine outside and brought the men with him that he needed by his side in his hour of trial. And even his best friends were AWOL. As he dealt with a deep inner revulsion which came from his true human nature at the prospect which lay before him, he was alone, forsaken of man. But there was someone that he reached out to, someone who had never left him in his life, someone whom he described as being so close that he and this person were one. Almighty God the Father. And he prayed three times to the Father, three different but related prayers. It's possible. Take this cup from me, but not my will be done. Thy will. We see echoes, by the way, of the Lord's Prayer in all three prayers that he prays. The second prayer, it seems to indicate in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, that he now knows in this second round of praying that it's not possible. So he's committing himself to the will of God. And the third prayer, which concludes in a sense prematurely when his accusers and his arresters are at hand is him giving himself, stealing himself for that moment. So he's clearly supported by God though abandoned by man in Gethsemane. So I said it's not the first time he's forsaken. But it is the worst time. I'll never forget when I first read in the Bible that it pleased the father to bruise his son. Sent chills. I know dads, we, my dad at least, and I probably said it myself, when applying discipline to your children, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Kids are like, yeah, right. The father. How could it be possible? The depths of love that it would take for rebel sinners goes beyond even my greatest capacity to imagine. It shocked my mind that if the Father and the Son are one, as Jesus said, to forsake the Son in this horrible moment, 
in a sense, in a mysterious way, God is forsaking himself. Something that I can't even explain. The second thing you need to notice about Jesus being forsaken of God is that he is not completely forsaken of God. He's not completely forsaken. He's miserably forsaken, but not fully forsaken. What I mean is that God has not entirely abandoned Jesus. This is not a God-free zone on the cross. This is not a circle of the planet where the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God is somehow evacuated. Oh no. God is miserably present. Jesus is not fully forsaken. What remains of the presence of God on the cross is His unremitting, unyielding, undiluted wrath and terrifying anger at the sins of all of His elect people. So, in other words, to use an example, if we say, such and such, or even hell itself is a God-forsaken place. It's only a metaphor. There's no place on the planet, invisible creation. There's no place in the invisible creation, heaven or hell, where God is fully absent. No, God is present in hell. And in some mysterious manner, transcending the mind of man, God's presence in hell is purely for judgment without mercy, which is what James says, awaits all who forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. So likewise on the cross, Jesus' own personal living hell on earth, he is not completely forsaken, but miserably forsaken. He truly lived for several hours, unbelievably, under the active wrath and curse of God. His life was a living hell. So what can we learn from these horrifying words, these pathetic words of Jesus on the cross when he said, under the wrath of God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First and foremost, you need to see that he was forsaken of God for you. This is the gospel of our salvation. This is what Paul means when he says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We might become something that we aren't. He might become something that he isn't. We might receive something that we don't deserve. And he might receive something that he didn't. Sometimes this is called the great exchange and it's good news for us, but bad news for him. It comes free to us, but at the cost of his precious blood. Listen to this, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. Piper put it this way, if God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for the son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving, and therefore his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice and the Son was willing to be forsaken of the cross. This is the gospel. And that's the first lesson for you. You need to believe the good news. 
Secondly, he has a true human nature. And because he suffered in this way, this unimaginable way, this, this ultimate way, there is nothing that you are suffering that he cannot relate to. Now, he hasn't suffered every single temptation. There are things, perhaps, that didn't enter in a specific and concrete way in the catalog of his sufferings. But every single suffering, every temptation is what we're told in the account of the wilderness temptation. After suffering, every temptation, Jesus was comforted. And in that sense, he has suffered in every way so that you might have comfort in your suffering and in your struggles. The deep distress he experiences give you comfort. The emotional turmoil that he went through should give you confidence that he can relate to yours. And since he has suffered in his flesh, he is able to help all who suffer here and now. For even though you may feel God forsaken, you are most definitely not forsaken of God. And there are some ways which the Christian will never, ever be forsaken, even as he was. Be of good cheer. And third, I want to encourage you to reconsider injustice. This is a comment on so much of what goes on in our society today, the, the, the chatter and the conversation about what's right and what's wrong. Well, the cross requires you, it demands that you reconsider your definition of injustice. How do you think about injustice? Keep in mind, I'm not asking you to turn a blind eye. I'm not asking you to candy coat it or sugarcoat it. I don't want you to passively stand by and not get involved, but in all of your efforts to, con- to correct injustice in your life and in the world, remember, at the heart of all the injustices is that which Jesus has experienced. When he was forsaken of God on the cross, there is no human injustice that can compare. So also in society today, as on the cross, just as it took a sovereign work of God to to rectify the injustice on the cross, the greatest injustice, which would be the resurrection, so also it requires a sovereign work of God to make things right in the world. No amount of efforts from the grassroots or the ground up will be able to rebuild the new Jerusalem. This is a city which comes down from above. Not that you should give in to pessimism or cynicism or passivity. But a gospel realism understands that until God returns in Christ, until he catechismically splits with his sovereign acts of justice, time and history, and penetrates this age, bringing all things to an end, we will always be reckoning with the residue of injustice Nothing you and I can do can permanently straighten what sin, death, and hell itself has made crooked. And finally, because of this, as you work and wait for Christ to make all things right, work and pray, pray and work, you need to do so with the confidence that only Scripture can give. And here I want to point out that Jesus, in his deepest hour of distress, What came out of his mouth was Psalm 22. When you squeezed him, when you pressed him, when you crushed him, what came out of his veins 
was the Word of God. You can't miss this from our text. This not only fulfilled prophecy, but it points the way for you to face your troubles with the Scriptures on your mouth and in your heart. So as you fight and struggle with suffering in your life, I fear far too many of you do it on your own, searching your mind for explanations and combing through your experiences for some justification and talking to a hundred people who, who will listen to your struggle and your trial. And you never open the book of the Lord, which has been given to you for this purpose, to interpret and exegete and explain all your trials and your sorrows, especially the Psalms. Especially the Psalms. So long for the Word. Pant for the Word. Yearn for the Scriptures. Commit it to your memory. Rehearse it. Sing it. Use it as a crutch. Yes, that's right. Use the Bible as a crutch to prop up your sagging spirits and to fortify your trembling heart. Use it as a scaffold for your tottering soul and to give yourself a willingness that you would not have on your own until he comes. Anathema, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. The word from the cross, which speaks of a forsakenness that we will never have to know. We who are in Christ. But, oh God, what a terrifying word this is for any who this evening do not know you and who stand outside of the Christian faith as an onlooker, as a bystander, one in the crowds, and not amongst his followers, his disciples. Lord, we know we're not perfect as Christians, far from it. But one thing we do know, you were forsaken of God that we would never be, and you died to give us life. So help us, Lord, as we seek to share that life with others and to bring more life into this dying and dark world. May we do it with the scriptures that you have given to your church as we await your triumphant return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.